Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Welcome to our first 9 a.m. in quite a while. So uh, all your early birds, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, maybe you just had to be here. But um, anyway, welcome back to this uh, schedule we're on. Um, and welcome to you that are, those of you who are here for the first time maybe in quite a while or maybe the first time ever. As Ben said earlier, I think Emily maybe said, um, welcome especially to you guys. Glad you're, you're with us here today. Uh, we are in a going to start a series today. It's just going to be a two-week series on our vision and values as a church, a couple of our main core values that we love to do this a couple times a year, usually in September and January in particular, but sometimes kind of interspersed throughout the other parts of the year as well. Uh, but uh, the, the big idea here, which is probably kind of obvious, but it's just a way to remind us who we are as a church. And then for those of you that are not a part of our church or are new, to learn a little bit more about what makes us tick as a community, uh, what really it means to be a Christian, maybe, uh, or to, to kind of be a Christian in ministry, too. So I mean that broad scale, not just like paid pastors or something, but all of us who call a church home, what that means and what that should look like and, and so forth. So um, today we're going to do uh, so a, a couple of things these next two weeks. We're going to look at two of our core values as a church, and um, it's really going to kind of fall into like one of our more God-centered core values and then one of our more people-centered ones. In fact, the, the five, we have five core values, which I'll read here in a second, but the five can kind of be boiled down into two, a more God-centered one and a more people-centered one, uh, or just God and people uh, uh, in, in a way. But specificity is really important for us with these things, and so we, we elaborated. And so when we started this church 12 years ago, so it's kind of our birthday about right now, so we're, we're about 12 years old as a church. When we started Hiawatha, we wanted values that God, at the very nature of who God is, biblically, and the essence of Christian ministry at the same time. And so I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to be novel here. So as we read these five, you're, you might say, if, you, if you're kind of a church person, or if you're a Christian, you might say, those are kind of obvious, those are big picture. And yes, if you're thinking that, yes, that's what we wanted. We don't want to be kind of niche or new or cute or just kind of sexy or trendy with how we talk about these things. We want to be old and traditional and biblical with how we talked about our core. What are we at the nucleus who are we? What is our bullseye? What are we aiming at vision-wise and so forth? We wanted to get back to the core or just kind of be the core, express the core of who God is and what his mission is in, in the world. And so let me read our five values and we'll talk about what we're going to do today here in a second. But our, our five core values of the church, so it's five big things, what makes us who we are as a church, are God's glory, gospel centrality, spirit empowerment, church community, and missional intentionality. And so today what we're going to do is talk about the first of these five, God's glory. And our, and our tagline to this is, this is in our, um, our bylaws and kind of just some different documentation we have around. So you may have seen this, our website maybe too, but different things we have, have around in, in print. So you, you may have seen this, but our tagline is, we say often at Hiawatha, it's not about us, it's about God. We value not taking ourselves too seriously and doing all things for God's glory and Jesus' fame. It also begins our vision statement as a church, and so I'll read that as well here too, even though today's going to be more about the core value than this, but it begins our vision, which is to glorify God by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ through word and deed out to our city and beyond. So a couple of just quick asides about God's glory uh, before we get into this topically. So talk about God's glory theologically here. Uh, it, it is an abstract phrase, no doubt. Uh, you may have never even heard about it before. Uh, maybe you have. Uh, but it essentially means God's perfect holiness or a term we use to describe like his just awesomeness and might and power. The Westminster Theological Dictionary of Terms calls it here, and I threw this on the screen, 
The divine essence of God is absolutely resplendent and ultimately great. And so it's like one of those definitions where you say, oh, that's amazing, but what does that really mean? It's, uh, it's supposed to be still kind of nebulous and abstract, but uh, another more accessible way to talk about God's glory, if this helps, is just to talk about God's fame and renown. So when we talk about glorifying God, as our vision statement said, or like the Bible says, to, to, to glorify him, or um, like if, if a person's worshiping him or glorifying him, it means making him famous and worshiping him. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we, we talk about we want to make him famous and we want to centralize him and, and not assume him. And that leads me to the second aside, which is we didn't want to assume, we started this church 12 years ago, and we were thinking through these core values, we did not want to assume God. And so, in fact, the first sermon I ever preached in this building publicly, we had one, like, kind of practice gathering for our launch team before that, but on our launch Sunday, September 3rd, 2006, 12 years ago, this is the topic I preached on, God's glory. It's our first core value then, it's our first core value now uh, as well. And, and we, we didn't want to assume God. This is why we, we had this core value. We don't want to assume him and say, oh yeah, of course God's awesome. Of course it's all about him. Everyone knows that. We just assumed it. And then we, we went on uh, to talk about other things. We didn't want to do that because this idea, this doctrine is a reminder of who he is, how awesome he is, and how small we are, which we need because we're prideful and self-absorbed people. And pride decreases God's glory and increases ours. We'll talk more about that later. But think of it like muscle atrophy. If we don't exercise the muscle of keeping God's glory big, we will invariably start to put something else at the center. We're really good at that. And it will probably be us. And we will deglorify him, which in a lot of ways is the core of what sin is. Again, more on that in just a second. This third aside, third of three here, though, is that theologically, the idea of God's glory closely relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as all doctrines do. And so, what I want to do today is talk more about what this is, what is God's glory, why is it good news, how it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and kind of thereby, or through that, why it's one of our uh, core values at Hiawatha Church. And so, I want to do that kind of by means of looking through the whole entire biblical storyline with this theme in mind. Just, just the mountaintops, so we won't be here at dinner time. We could be. Uh, just the mountaintops, though, kind of three big parts today, and then at the end we'll talk about how this shapes our culture here, too, and kind of an invitation for you guys, freshly maybe into this, if you are a member or a regular attender here, and something that maybe you've forgotten or, or just by way of reminder, but if you're not um, a Christian yet or if you're not a part of this church yet, this will hopefully be instructive or just kind of a, a little more on who we are as a community as you maybe consider calling this place home uh, in a church church or whatever, whatever your story is. So, three parts to God's glory throughout the biblical storyline. Part one is page one of the Bible, acknowledging glory at the beginning of the story. So, um, a couple of years ago, I think it was two years, might have been almost three here. I think we started this series in December, so it might be three years this December we started a sermon series in the book of Genesis, the, the first book of the Bible. Genesis means beginnings. And we spent an entire sermon on the first part of verse 1. Maybe some of you remember this and you were here for this, but the Bible begins with four words. Remember what these four words are? First four words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So, um, skipping around here a little bit, kind of going quick, but before anything else, 
before there's even a verb in this sentence. God and his glory. In other words, the Bible does not begin with, in the beginning, you. Or in the beginning, the law of God. Or in the beginning, God had a plan for you. None of that's there. But rather, in the beginning, just God and his glory. And we see right away throughout the rest of chapter 1 and 2, if you know this about Genesis, uh, throughout the, the early creation narratives, that God himself is absolutely sufficient for creation and for the first human beings. Just the fact that God is there and he made them and he walks with them, that's enough. And everything's perfect. And so remember, this is also how the Gospel of John begins as well. Later in the Bible, in the New Testament, after all things fall away to sin and death, this is uh, descriptive of the beginning of God's redemptive plan, New Testamently. And so the Gospel of John begins describing the, the beginning of the ministry of Christ. In the beginning was Jesus. So th this signifies that another new creation was coming through him. So John, when he writes this book, he's intentionally borrowing from Genesis 1-1 to say that a new creation is here and it's associated with Christ. Through him, I'm going to make all things new. And I'm going to restore all that's fallen. And so through that then, we also affirm that he was there at the beginning of our spiritual story. So speaking to all of you who are Christians, especially right now when I say this, he was there at the beginning and all throughout, but the beginning, so to speak, of our spiritual birth or our spiritual story or our spiritual journey. Or that we're saved by grace, not by works, as we say so often here. Or to use the language of Genesis 1-1, we are saved by Jesus being there not by us being there. By his creative effort, not ours. And so, but before we talk more about salvation, let's talk a little bit more about the problem. So we'll come back to some of this, but that's the, the first part. The second part, beginning in Genesis 3 and kind of onward, we, we, we learned this, but I'll just kind of summarize some things here. The problem here, as it relates to the theme of glory, so there's a lot of ways to define the problem, but as it relates to the theme of glory, Romans 3.23 says in the New Testament, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which is a really weird thing, kind of a weird way to describe it, but it's interesting, it's actually really helpful, it should be, but an interesting way to describe the problem with the world because it doesn't just say people commit sins like adultery or unkindness, it says that elsewhere, so that is part of the problem, but it doesn't say that here. It says all have sinned, kind of broad scale, and, or kind of by, falling short of the glory of God. And so it doesn't just say people commit sins like adultery or unkindness, but they fall short of his glory. This is described elsewhere in chapter 1 as exchanging the glory of God for other things, which itself is referring to idolatry or disbelief or maybe just entertaining the notion that God isn't that great, but that we are. Could be many other things as well. But your, your everyday sins, like sexual sin, aren't just wrong then. What this is saying is they're kind of an exchanging of glory for something else. And so like, a, like an everyday sin, like sexual sin, is not just something that is labeled wrong in the Bible. It's saying we know what's right, or we think we do, or we are our own gods, and we turn in on ourselves by making other people or things bow to us. And a lot of people have called sexual sin actually at its core a sin of power and control because of this and i'm talking just kind of again broad scale not just christians but 
but others as well. Sexual sin is a sin of power and control because it actually, um, it, it's sort of a context or a platform for us to kind of cause other things to bow down to us. And this is what we mean by exchanging glory. That's what the Bible means by it. It's exchanging God's glory, the fame that is due him, his awesomeness for our own. This is what happens every time we sin. It's kind of the, the sin behind the sin. And so other sins are symptomatic of this greater problem. We think we're something when we're nothing, the Bible says in Galatians 6.3. We think we're something when we're nothing. We self-deify or self-glorify. The very beginning in Genesis 3, this is the kind of the temptation of the serpent, of the devil to Adam and Eve is, God's not really that great. Did he really say that to you? Can he really be trusted? If you eat that fruit, God knows you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. So eat, partake, and you'll, you'll be a God unto yourself. That's where all hell broke loose. Not go and murder someone. That came the next chapter in Genesis 4 when Cain murdered Abel. So it's symptomatic of the greater problem of thinking that we're sufficient. Adam and Eve exchanged the glory of God for their own when they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. But that's another story. John actually helps define this further in the New Testament. So later I... I mentioned John 1.1 here, but same book. Twelve chapters later, he says, they, people, loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's really important to understand the doctrine of sin this way. Uh, because sin is, sin is, or at least it can be, I don't know where all you guys are at with this. I'm guessing this is kind of broadly speaking true for most of you. But sin can be a very vague and, and culturally a relative term. So it's actually not relative biblically. We, we don't believe that here, but it can be a relative idea uh, to, to our culture. But more than that, it can just be a vague idea. What is sin exactly? And so this definition of sin, exchanging glory or just pride, arrogance, or self-glory can be a little easier to accept or at least to see at work in the world uh, by experience. So the idea here is that experience backs this definition maybe a little bit easier. So in, in other words, and for example, who loves hanging out with a prideful person who is full of themselves? Like who loves doing that? No one, right? Who loves hanging out with a person who's just kind of full of themselves and can't stop talking about themselves? That's a painful experience, right? Who equates arrogance and goodness? Who equates arrogance and purity? And goodness who does that or who can say they are extremely happy when all they think about is themselves I mean honestly like when you when you all you think about is you and kind of what's happening to you or this little world around you are you extremely happy to the core as a human being as a person in a selfie happy culture why aren't we happier why is social media being increasingly tied to depression anxiety, and even suicide. It's because sin is self-absorption. It's because we're masters at exchanging God's glory for ourselves and putting ourselves on display and just wanting others to fall down at our feet and say, you're amazing. And so even by way of talking about the problem, we start to understand what kind of remedy is needed. We need God to save us by restoring his glory in our lives. That's what we need. The problem defines the solution, always in theology. 
what we think the problem is, that is what we think Jesus will come into the world to fix because he's a savior. So the problem is always related to the solution. And so just by way of talking about the problem, we see we need a God to save us by restoring his glory in our lives. By restoring his awesomeness, his worth, his sufficiency. We essentially need him to save us from ourselves. Not just sin, but from us. By grace, apart from what we have to give him. One, because it's the only way to be saved, is to be saved by God. We can't save ourselves. But two, and this is a big deal sort of on the more subjective experiential level, we need this because we need him to show us his glorious love and power and to change us with that love so that we'd actually become worshipers again. So we can be with him again, not just forgiven and wiped clean, but we can actually be with him again and actually want to be with him and actually worship him and be thankful. So change from the inside as well. It's kind of this objective and subjective idea to salvation in Christianity where we're considered forgiven and considered clean because Jesus dies in our place. And, he, and that's the way God ushers in forgiveness to fallen creatures like us. He sends his son to die for us. So it's kind of this declaration of forgiveness and purity and cleanliness and salvation, but it's also subjective. And one of the ways it's subjective is God wins us over with his love. He changes us from the inside out with his love so that we become God glorifiers again. So that the church becomes a God glorifying, redeemed community of, of people again who were formerly God's enemies but are now worshipers. Like that's, when does that happen? I mean, this is, this is the power of God at work in the world. When God haters become God singers and God worshipers. That's, that's our story, church. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, that's the story of Christianity. Understand that. It's not just an idea. It's a reality of being saved back into a place where we celebrate God's glory. And we just look at God and say, he's enough. Jesus is enough. God is enough. So step three then, if this is the problem then, step three is God reveals his glory in stages or in covenants culminating in Christ. This is a big thing here, the subtitle that, again, we could be here till dinner, but a couple quick things on this I'll walk through. I want to start with 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11. And here the Apostle Paul talks about two things, a ministry of death and a ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of death is the Old Testament, which mediated people and God by laws. So it was bent on Israel's obedience and their ability to kind of be good before God. That was the mediatorial thing. The New Testament is the ministry of the Spirit, which is a covenant based on Jesus' work for us, not ours for God. So Paul in context is talking about the two kinds of, of covenants and testaments or ways of God working in history. The former has glory, the ministry of death. It still had some semblance of glory, but the latter has greater glory. Basically going to say, if this one had glory and it led to death, how much more does this, this one have glory? And it leads to life, and it's permanent. And this one's just temporary. So, all right, let me just read it. I'm saying the whole thing here without agreeing it. But anyway, verse 7. Now, if, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, so we're referring to the Ten Commandments especially, when Moses received the law inscribed by God's finger on the stone on the top of Mount Sinai and brought it down to the people. If the ministry of death, that's the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit 
have even more glory. For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, again, Old Testament, the ministry of righteousness, New Testament, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So let me just summarize quick. Lots to say about this. Let me summarize with the theme of glory in mind. Revealing, God revealing glory in the Old Testament led to death and condemnation. It was partial, it was meant to end, it was law-centered. And the law, by focusing on people's ability to be righteous before God and to make themselves clean, separated them further from God and God from them. But when God reveals glory in the New Testament, it leads to life and righteousness, and it lasts forever, and it's full of grace. And there's no law except the law of Jesus' death and resurrection. Just his body, his bloody body on the cross, dying for us and reconciling us with God, making us clean by his blood. So the former said, make yourselves clean, purify yourself before you come to me and worship me in the temple. The latter says, God makes you clean, and the cleansing agent is the blood of Christ. So the first covenant had some glory in it because God sort of drew near to people through it and it pointed Israel and the world watching ahead to Jesus. It had a glory that people couldn't really gaze at, though. They couldn't look at it. It was too much. But the second covenant, the New Testament, is a better one and it could be looked at. God could be fully seen in it because sin was being fully destroyed by Christ. That's the idea here. So elsewhere in the New Testament, you see in, like in Hebrews 1.3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it says here that Jesus is the glory of God. He is, he is the essence of this full kind of manifestation of God's glory in the world. His essence, who he is, but also what he's like and what he does. Because restored glory, so going back to what the idea of what we need from God to save us from the state of being like glory exchangers, restored glory must be worked for. If he just displays his glory against fallen creatures, we can't look at it. We can't stare at it. It's too much. Too holy, too good, can't approach it, can't understand it. We'll be separated from God forever if that's the case. If it's just an expression of glory, judgment, ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. But if he's going to win fallen creatures back to his glory, that needs to come at a cost and in a way that woos us back to himself. And that's why a purification for sins is mentioned in context with glory. He's the essence of the glory of God, and he makes purification for our sins. And that's a glorious thing. We also see it more explicitly in John 12, where it says, Jesus answered them, the hour is come for me, the Son of Man, to be glorified. So how is Jesus, the essence of the glory of God, going to glorify himself? He says in verse 24, he explains, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone on the plant. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what this is saying is, quite clearly, Jesus is saying this about himself. 
It's, t- it's time for me to be glorified. How? When I die. That's when I'm going to glorify my Father's name in heaven and glorify my name before you. Jesus is glorified when he dies. And he likens himself here to a grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies and bears much fruit through his death. So it benefits us. But don't miss the big point. Jesus' death here is not a small passing thing, nor is it just one small step in his greater mission of redemption. It is the thing. It is the thing that glorifies God and that glorifies him. There there are many expressions of, of God's glory in the world, but the cross is where he expresses his glory at the highest level, where God himself gives up his one and only son for the sake of saving his enemies, you and me. And this, this is how God begins to restore glory in our lives, like we were talking about before. Jesus dies kind of on a couple of levels here. So Jesus dies for the sin of exchanging God's glory for our own, for our sin of pride, essentially. But he also wins our heart over by love as well. By, by making us sit back and look at the cross, feeling the weight of our sin, what it costs God to save us, but feeling the greater weight of his love and saying, wow, is that who God is? Is he that good? Could he be that gentle? Like that song the band just sang, uh, what have we done to deserve that love? Is he that generous? Is he that mighty? Is he that willing to lose it all for me, the God of the universe? See, the gospel is not, and this is where, just to pile it on here a bit, so the gospel is not, when it looks at the problem, it doesn't say, de-exchange that glory. Fix it. Start glorifying God. The law says that, but it never works. And that's part of the problem anyway, is working or doing good apart from him. So we should be going back to kind of square one anyway, if that's what we thought. That's not the gospel. The gospel does not say de-exchange the glory or get back to a place where you're worshiping or glorifying God. This is crucial to see, you guys, topically in the Bible. When it talks about glory being lost, what's the solution? Is it start glorifying God? Not at all. The gospel is rather, Jesus has come to die for you and in that way to be the glory of God to you. The solution is God shining his glory all the more brightly at the problem. Apart from you and me. It's like him coming into the world and just saying, this is who I am. This is my generosity. This is my love. This is my ability to overcome all odds and problems. I love you. My love is so big, it goes to hell and back. It's so big, it's not willing to hold anything back to save you. That's the solution, the gospel. It never says or implies, try harder at glorifying God. Isn't that a relief? If you're honest with your heart, if I'm honest with my heart, it's impossible to do that. Without the gospel, I mean, the, the response here is just simply believe. Believe in him. Trust in him. Respond to the bright, shining display of God's glory that is right here and believe that he died for you, that God did not withhold his one and only son to save you. And then think, wow, glory to God. 
Glory to God that he is like that. And so how, how God's glory then affects life and church ministry here, there's much more to say, but how all of that affects life and church ministry here at, at our church. Um, we, we push this doctrine and value here, not just because it's true, but because it creates a healthy church culture and it changes lives. So one of the things we say a lot, like it said in that tagline, um, to our, to our value, is it's not about us. Because of the fact that it's about God, it's not about us. Life isn't ultimately about you. Christianity isn't ultimately about you. Marriage, those of you who are married, or who will be someday, marriage is not about you. It's about Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we think harshly or poorly of ourselves, it means we think of ourselves less. We think of ourselves as loved by God versus being people who deserve love. It's very different. You and I don't deserve love, but we are. And so we think about how we're loved and what it costs God to love us and how he showed his love for us, though we we're undeserving. But many voices, even inside the church and are being published, would say we're, we deserve it. When you deserve something, it's not grace. And it's not that amazing to get. And so it actually lowers, the, lessens the glory of God and increases yours. I think you're lovable, you start to inch up your like glory thermometer. You know, the mercury on your thermometer there, but it starts going up, up, up. And like John the Baptist said, I need to decrease and he needs to increase, referring to Jesus, right? So it's like this is how it works. This is like the physics of it all. So the theological physics. When our glory decreases, his gets bigger and when god displays his bigger you, you, like you can't look at the cross and think wow i'm an amazing person <laughs> like it's impossible to think that right this is the idea you can't you can think wow i'm loved but you can't think you're an amazing you can't self-glory in that moment and that's good for our souls we need that we need to run on that for the sake of your happiness So like the, like the moon reflects the light of the sun, you know? It's like we, we want to look at ourselves as reflections of God's glory rather than the center of glory themselves. The moon does not have a source of light itself, and nor do you and I. You do not have a source of light yourself. You can reflect the light, the one who calls himself the light in the Bible, God and Christ, who is the light of the world, John 1. You can reflect that light but you and I have no source of light. And so this is why we say it's not about us. It's about God. And that leads to, like I said, happiness, but also humility, maybe is one of these kind of principal things. I have four things, by the way, here. This is the second of things. We talk about culture here. Relatedly, let's just read this paragraph. Relatedly, the idea, so these three things, the idea it's not about us, the principle of grace, not our works that save us, but God's grace and the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself, that kind of trifecta there, all those things together helps us laugh at ourselves because we're saved by grace. It helps us confess sin without fear of rejection. It helps us put others first because we already have our prize. No more competition. We don't have to be out in front. We already have our prize. Our prize is Christ. And it also helps us with our mental health. 
because it clarifies our identity, it gives us hope, and it gets us outside of ourselves. The opposite of a selfie-centered lifestyle. This also helps here with um, rightly motivated spirituality. Uh, all these things are sermons unto themselves here, but just a couple of things. Um, the Bible says, do all things for the glory of God. So in, in, when, you, when you read that phrase, think, well, what is the glory of God? Think Christ's gospel is the ultimate expression of that, right, like we talked about today. So do all things then for Christ's gospel. Do all things for the sake of it, making it more famous, making it more central, making it more visible. Which then means we do all things not to be saved by them, but to show off his power and work and awesomeness in the world. We do not do good to be saved, period. Hear that, you guys. Remember that, most of you. Or hear that for the first time if that's the case. You do not, we do not as Christians do good to be saved. But what does this say? Why do we do it? To demonstrate the glory of God. So we serve then not to be saved or to glorify ourselves, but to demonstrate how Christ served us by becoming a ransom for us on the cross. Mark 10, 45, Jesus' words. He served us by dying for us. So when we serve, we want to be like the moon to that sun. We want the sun of the gospel to like bounce off of the face of the moon of our acts of service and sort of shine more brightly in the world through deed, as our vision got at. We want to spread the gospel through word and deed. That's one deed way it can look. And Christianity is very different here from all other world religions. All other religions say, do good to be saved. Christianity says, do good for the glory of God, to make him famous. Critical, critical difference, crucial difference between the two to understand. And then fourth, gospel-centeredness. If you hear nothing else, just hear this about, at least about our church. Well, hear the gospel first, but in terms of culture stuff, hear this above anything else. This is Hiawatha Church. At least speaking of leadership and speaking about our you know, membership and the, the most people who are here, but especially this is coming from leadership when we, when, when we say this, when I say this. We love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from us. That's who we are. We love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. And we're unashamed about it. It's gonna, it shapes everything we do. And who or what is that king of glory, as Psalm something something says? I forget what Psalm it is, Peter. You should know this. Um, who is the king of glory? It's Jesus. He fulfills that, that question in that psalm. Psalm 19. Who is the king of glory? All right. So the main way, then, we, we talk about the glory of God here, as an example, is to talk about Christ. This affects our hermeneutics, our interpretation of the Bible, when we love the glory then of the cross and the empty tomb more than the lesser glories of human beings. And so I think one of the big things in John 12 where this, this phrase comes from, that the issue that's being kind of spoken into is people were people pleasers. And, and they, wanted, they wanted to not have conflicts with people and to be liked by people at the expense of the glory of God. And so like, Theologically, but culturally here then too as a church, we love the glory that comes from God more than human praise. 
You know, and so I, I know speaking for all the overseers who preach up here, we're not going to preach in order to please people. I mean, the gospel is kind of a pleasing thing in one sense, but it's not flattery. You know, saying it's not about you, it's like, that's like the most countercultural thing that there is to say. So we will not do things as a church in order to please people, but we will do the things that we think are best for people as God helps us. And that's something that all of you can participate with, not just leaders, but all of you can help shape that culture and how you live, act, breathe, and just kind of have your being existing here in, in similar capacity as, as a Christian. And so that this last piece here um, is just an invitation. We, we usually give this at the end of... Um, at the end of visioning sermons like this. It's, it's in part to explain this is who we are as a church. A lot of you are new to our, our community. Um, it's to say this is who we are. Understand this is who we are. Understand this. We're going to keep talking this way. And um, also understand this is what the Bible says about these things. And so we kind of come at it that way. Also understand this is how the gospel relates to this kind of topic or, or value or whatever. So we talk about it that way. But this is also who we are culturally as a church. And so it's an invitation then to two things. Invitation to Jesus, who gave himself for you, Galatians 1 says. This is the gospel. Jesus gave himself for you. So recognize it. Believe in him. Cast yourself in all of your cares upon that type of Savior. And the God who sent him into the world, not to withhold him or be stingy with his love, but generous with it. So it's an invitation to believe in his gospel and then secondarily to help us value God's glory here. And many things can do it. I mean, everything from worship to being an unashamedly cross-centered person. So kind of big things. But also things like just being thankful reflects that it's about God's glory. Everything. To not taking yourself too seriously. To laughing at yourself. To being self-deprecating with your humor sometimes or something. To eating a good breakfast to the glory of God. All the, those things all matter. Those big things and those small things, they're all spiritual. They all matter. They all help shape a culture. They all help advance God's kingdom. They, they all have opportunities to give you joy. So it all matters. And, and it helps shape things here. It's, it is not an overstatement to say it is precisely what you were created for. To run on something other than yourself. It is precisely what you were created for. To run, I mean run, on something other than you. But every other voice you will hear in the world, including your own wicked heart, like mine, will say otherwise. And so it, it is extremely easy. In fact, we don't even have to really do anything except atrophy back into that place by not actively thinking about the gospel of grace. Knowing it well. Knowing, hearing the, the kind of the counter-truth voice of the gospel, which says all the opposite. We've exchanged God's glory for our, our own, for ourselves. We put ourselves on the throne, and it's affected everything. And so, it, and it seeps into the church too. And so, it's not an overstatement to say that. Um, and again, there are a few more countercultural things than that statement right there. It's not about you. Or you are meant to run on something other than yourself, right? But it's true. 
And Jesus died for our propensity to exchange his glory for our own. And he purchased us with his own blood back from that former way of thinking to a new way. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we talk about those two things. And, and, and the, the implication is worship, worship him, not yourself. And, and I think give your life away. There, there's a, a passage, I think it's Acts 20, where Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, he's like saying goodbye to them probably forever. He's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die there. And so he's saying, he planted this church and he loves these guys and he's saying goodbye. And he says, Part of my story has been I have not valued my life. I, I've placed no value on it whatsoever. I, my life is not valuable. I've spent it for you. I've spent my strength for other Christians who are made in, in the image of God and who are my brothers and sisters, who are made specially in the image of Christ because they're Christians. It's, it's a way to worship, but he's saying, I've given my life away. I've not considered it valuable or precious in any way that I might finish my race, that I might continue and finish my ministry. And part of life and ministry is giving yourself completely away. Not protecting or hedging in, but because we already have our prize, and our prize is Christ. We already have everything we'd ever need in order to be saved and to live a godly life in Christ Jesus from First Peter something, something. But we have everything we're ever going to need to live that godly life and to have eternal life with God. And so then we can give it away. We can spend it. We don't need to protect it. So worship, not him, not yourself. Understand what God, how God shone his glory into the world to save you and how the remedy was God making his glory all the brighter, not saying to you, try harder to glorify God. That was the ministry of death and condemnation. Now, the ministry of the spirit or of righteousness is God just shining brightly against our resistance to him, shining brightly against our disbelief, shining brightly against our, not just propensity to be self-glorifiers, but our inability to not be that. And the way he's shown against it is by sending his son into the world to die in our place and in that way to be glorified according to the Bible. Glorified through death. Glorified through suffering. Glorified through, like Peter was saying before that last song, I think, through condescension, becoming nothing for us on the cross so that we might be welcomed back into God's glory and enjoying him like the... Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think it is, says about the chief end of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify him and just enjoy him. Notice how lawless that is and how religionless that it that is. It's all about God, all about Jesus. It's all about him coming our way to save. So we worship, we thank, and we give our lives away because we already have our prize. Father, thank you for this. Um, thank you for this church. It exists because you wanted it to. Thank you that we're here, um, twelve years later, talking about your glory. Still, now that's a gift. That's not from any person or group of people or the whole church. Because uh, we, we, like I know I speak for myself. I don't have an enemy to be a God glorifier. I'm terrible at that. And so, Father, uh, just speaking on behalf of the leadership here, that, that is not something we have brought. It's something you have brought. Because you're really good at reminding us or just 
shining back against our disbelief what truly is the glory of God, and that is Christ crucified and Christ raised. So, Father, help us to just to truly be that as a people. Uh, theologically, these are big kind of abstract terms, so help us to learn these things and to kind of speak this language, but, but also as we drive that into, into culture, because gospel theology creates gospel culture. Theology creates culture. So, Father, help us to take what's true about you and about Jesus and about your glory and, and to drive that into sort of the, the nooks and crannies of the church and the nooks and crannies of our hearts that are dry and lifeless, Father. So I would pray for more of that, guided by your spirit. We pray for the miracle of that. because If that ever happens, it's a miracle because we don't deserve it and it does not come from man. So please, please, breathe life into our dead bodies. Make us alive. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us for exchanging glory, God. And um, thank you for dying for that, saving us from that, that sin, that lifestyle of sins, but also winning us over. And I pray for more of that too in our church, that love would change us, that forgiveness would change us, that the ministry of the Spirit and of righteousness, which is meant to last forever, unlike the first ministry in Testament, that that would change us and shape us and transform us. And for more people in our wonderful, beautiful, but broken city would hear this as well. We pray for that this year. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.